This is Space Time Series 21, Episode 27, for broadcast on the 6th of April, 2018. Coming up on Space Time, the origin of Earth's water, how a magnetic cage on the sun stopped a solar eruption, and we check out the April night skies on Skywatch and the Lyrids meteor shower. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. A new study claims most of Earth's water was already present on the planet before the giant impact event which created the Moon four and a half billion years ago. The findings, reported in the journal Science Advances, are based on studies of an extensive collection of lunar and terrestrial rock samples. According to the giant impact theory, our Moon was created some 4.5 billion years ago when a Mars-sized planet called Thea collided with the early proto-Earth, melting both bodies, and leaving the Earth as a magma ocean surrounded by a ring of orbiting molten debris which eventually coalesced to form the Moon. The massive planetary collision resulted in the near-complete mixing of both bodies, and the identical stable isotope ratios of both lunar and terrestrial rock further support this theory. Scientists have long hypothesised that the heat generated by this major impact, after all it was hot enough to melt rock, would have vaporised any water on proto-Earth or Thea at the time, meaning the Earth's current water supply must have come later, most likely through asteroid impacts. Astronomers originally assumed comets would have supplied the water, but the hydrogen to deuterium isotopic ratios of water found on comets doesn't match those of water found on Earth. To better understand what happened during the giant impact, Richard Greenwood and colleagues from the Open University analysed the oxygen isotope compositions of a large set of lunar rocks collected during the Apollo moon missions. They also analysed rock samples from Earth taken from the deep ocean seabed. They focused their attention on oxygen, which makes up about half of the rocks they analysed. As well as being the third most abundant element in the solar system after hydrogen and helium, oxygen also has a very distinctive set of oxygen isotope compositions. Their analysis showed only a 3 to 4 parts per million difference between the oxygen isotopic concentrations on lunar rocks and those of terrestrial basalts, and no significant difference between the lunar samples and terrestrial olivine, a common mineral found in Earth's subsurface. According to the authors, the findings are consistent with high-energy impact simulations that suggest near-complete mixing. Greenwood and colleagues suggest that the 3 to 4 parts per million difference they uncovered can easily be explained by a late veneer or input of stony meteorite material onto Earth in subsequent impact events, especially during the late heavy bombardment some half a billion years later. Greenwood says the results further imply that a large portion of Earth's water present prior to the giant impact survived the apocalyptic event. In fact, Greenwood claims no more than 5 to 30% of water was contributed to Earth from the late veneer process. He says the research shows that water's actually very tenacious stuff. Even when a planet's totally melted and vaporised, the water still hangs round. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. Scientists have uncovered another clue in their understanding of what triggers space weather events. The findings reported in the journal Nature are based on detailed studies of data from NASA's Solar Dynamics spacecraft. Researchers know that these powerful geomagnetic storms have their origins in sunspot activity on the stellar surface. And a dramatic magnetic power struggle on the Sun's surface lies at the heart of these solar eruptions. 
The study highlights the role of the Sun's magnetic landscape, or topology, in the development of solar eruptions, which can trigger space weather events around Earth. These events all begin with sunspot activity. Slightly darker regions on the sun's visible surface or photosphere, which correspond to concentrations of magnetic field where the convective transport of heat from the solar interior to the surface is inhibited. This causes sunspots to be slightly cooler than the surrounding photosphere, and so appear darker. As different parts of the sun rotate at different rates, this differential rotation can cause the magnetic field lines protruding from the photosphere to snap, producing intense bursts of energy called solar flares. The electromagnetic energy of the solar flare will shoot out into space, and if the Earth just happens to be in that direction, that energy will slam into the planet's magnetosphere, causing a solar storm. However, sometimes a solar flare can trigger a far more powerful explosion called a coronal mass ejection, or CME, which blasts huge amounts of ionized solar material, energy and magnetism into space. Now, once again, if that blast just happens to be directed towards the Earth, it'll trigger a geomagnetic storm, as all this ionized plasma and energy slams into the magnetosphere. Because the stuff is ionized, the solar storm activity can overload electrical circuits, damaging or destroying spacecraft, overloading terrestrial power grids on the Earth, causing widespread blackouts, disrupting navigation and communications networks, and endangering astronauts in space. But working out which solar flares end up becoming coronal mass ejections and what differentiates the two situations is not clearly understood. To try and resolve the issue, scientists studied data from NASA's SDO, or Solar Dynamics Observatory spacecraft. They examined a solar flare event which erupted back in October 2014. The SDO's mission is to understand the influence of the Sun on the Earth and near-Earth space by studying the solar atmosphere on small scales of space and time and in many wavelengths simultaneously. The SDO has been investigating how the Sun's magnetic field is generated and structured, how the stored magnetic energy is converted and released into the heliosphere and geospace in the form of the solar wind, energetic particles, and variations in the solar irradiance. The 2014 event began with the development of a Jupiter-sized sunspot group considered the biggest over the past two solar cycles and a highly active region. Though conditions seemed right for an eruption, the region never produced a major coronal mass ejection on its journey across the Sun. It did, however, emit a powerful X-class solar flare, the most intense type of solar flare. The authors used the SDO's observations of magnetic fields at the Sun's surface in powerful models that calculate the magnetic field of the Sun's corona, or upper atmosphere, and closely examined how it evolved before the flare. The model revealed a battle between two key magnetic structures, a twisted magnetic rope known to be associated with the onset of coronal mass ejections, and a dense cage of magnetic fields overlaying the rope, the authors found that this magnetic cage physically prevented the coronal mass ejection from erupting. Just hours before the flare, the sunspot's natural rotation contorted the magnetic rope and it grew increasingly twisted and unstable, just like a tightly coiled rubber band. But the thing is the rope never erupted from the surface. It simply didn't have enough energy to break through the magnetic cage. It was, however, volatile enough that it lashed out through parts of the cage, triggering the strong solar flare. By changing the conditions of the cage in their model, scientists found that if the cage was just a teeny bit weaker, a major coronal mass ejection would have erupted on October 24, 2014. 
To find out more, Andrew Dunkley is speaking with Dr Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. The mystery of solar flares and why they happen, have they figured it out, Fred? Apparently they have, and in in a lot of detail, and with terminology that I think makes it easy to understand. Well, I think it does. So um, Maybe the, for Mandu the cat, but not for... <laughs> well, quite right. For yes. me. Look, he, he's across all of this, I can tell you. He sleeps through most of it, which is probably the correct answer. So we know that the activity of the sun, of course, dictates some of the things that happen here on Earth. So if you've got things like solar flares, they unleash beams of charged particles into the sun's outer atmosphere, which three days later or so often get to the distance of the Earth and and actually um, can interact with the Earth's magnetic field. And so we get displays of aurora borealis and aurora australis, and also sometimes disruptions to power supplies and communications. So we need to know about these things. We need to understand what solar flares are all about, how they work, how they are caused. And because of that, NASA in particular has, but other space agencies as well, have flotilla of spacecraft in orbit around the sun, actually studying the sun's surface. And principally because of those, but also because of ground-based observations too, we now know that the role of magnetism in these phenomena is very, very high. So the whole thing is basically driven by magnetism. And there's a lovely statement, actually, um, it's on the, the BBC report on this, which summarises it so well. Generally speaking, solar eruptions are caused by a sudden, violent rearrangement of the sun's magnetic field. And that's what it is. Often it is a kind of magnetic twang. The field lines are broken, and that releases the plasma from the sun's inner atmosphere out into space where it belts off across the solar system and can interact with the Earth. But there is now a lot more known about the kinds of structures within the sun's atmosphere that cause these processes. They're often associated, Andrew, with uh, sunspots, which we see even in small telescopes. You should never look at the sun through a telescope, but you can can if you've got a solar filter on, especially made piece of equipment, or you can also sometimes project the image of the sun through the telescope onto a sheet of paper or cardboard so you're always looking with your back towards the sun. It's easy to see these dark spots on the sun when you do that, the little black dots which actually have been known since before the invention of the telescope. William Herschel thought there were holes in the outer atmosphere of the sun that let us see down to its cooler surface underneath and he expected to see people wandering around on there but he never quite found those. But what we know they are now is regions where the temperature is slightly lower but more especially we know that there are regions where these complex magnetic processes are taking place. So there are two kinds of structures, and these are the ones that are now being more deeply understood. One is called a magnetic cage. And a magnetic cage, if you imagine the, you know, the magnetic field lines, which are the sort of thing that at school we used to demonstrate with a bar magnet and iron filings. Oh, there. yes, I love doing that one. That's right. They're lined up along the field lines. Mm. So in a way, that's a, a crude model of a magnetic cage. It's the field lines which are between two poles of a magnet, and the magnet, of course, is on the sun's surface, it's where the sunspot is. So this magnetic cage also contains something else, though, a different set of magnetic activity, and these are called ropes, magnetic ropes. So the magnetic ropes sit 
within the magnetic cage and the rope itself is almost like a twisted skipping rope. It's it's actually in very vigorous motion. This is not a real rope, it's just rope, a rope of magnetism, if I can put it that way. Yeah. So if the contortions of the magnetic rope are strong enough, they will break through the magnetic cage that confines them and that produces a plasma eruption, something we call a coronal mass ejection. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a, a very strong solar flare. So the cage itself apparently plays a very important role in all this. It's how strong the cage is depends on how well confined this energy is that the sun wants to spit out. But if you've got a strong magnetic cage, it won't do. So what's happening in this research is a combination of observations made by these various spacecraft, such as NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory. That's one that's actually looking at the sun constantly, but also using supercomputers to run simulations of what these things would do. It is really interesting stuff. I have to say that I'm not an expert on the sun's, on the, you know, the dynamics of the sun's magnetic field. Although I'm very interested in its effects, particularly when it causes aurora near the north and south poles of the Earth. There was one particular solar flare that these researchers studied. Many of them are actually from a French institution. This was one that took place in October 2014. And using the Solar Dynamics Observatory data, combining it with their supercomputer simulations, they determined that with this one, there was not enough energy within the magnetic rope to actually smash through the magnetic cage and cause a a coronal mass ejection. But despite this, the rope became very, very highly twisted. And what it produced was a large level of magnetic instability. And apparently that sort of upset part of the magnetic cage and that allowed the solar flare, the blast of radiation to actually come through. And in fact, that did have some disruptions on the Earth when it reached the Earth. Mm. So what is the point of all this? Well, the point is to try and use these solar observatories, the spacecraft themselves, to be able to predict exactly when a flare is going to occur and what its intensity might be. At the moment, all we can do is observe them and report them. We see a flare happening on the sun. We know if it's pointing in the right direction that a few days later, we're going to get activity on the Earth. That's the job of these observatory spacecraft, the Solar Dynamics Observatory and others. But if you can combine observations of these magnetic fields with the supercomputer simulations, then you might be able to say, well, in a day or two, we expect there's going to be a solar flare here. And that then gives you longer warning as to what its consequences might be on the Earth. That's Dr. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory speaking with Andrew Dunkley on our sister program, Space Nuts. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. And time now to check out the night skies of April on Skywatch. April is the fourth month of the year in the Gregorian calendar and the fifth in the early Julian calendar. The Romans gave the month its Latin name Aprilis. Although the name's origins are uncertain, traditional entomology suggests it's from the verb apre or to open, signifying it's the beginning of the season when trees and flowers begin to open as the northern hemisphere moves into spring. And high in the southern skies during April is the Southern Cross and of course its two pointer stars Alpha and Beta Centauri. The more distant of the two pointer stars is Alpha Centauri, the nearest star system to our own. Located some 4.3 light-years away, Alpha Centauri actually consists of three stars, Alpha Centauri A and B, which orbit each other, and Proxima Centauri, which orbits the pair. Proxima Centauri is some 4.2 light-years away from Earth, making it the closest star to Earth other than the Sun. Like the Sun, Alpha Centauri A is a spectral-type G yellow dwarf star. 
It's a little bit hotter, with about a tenth more times the mass than the Sun, and it's just over one and a half times the Sun's luminosity. Alpha Centauri b is a spectral type K orange dwarf star, a little smaller and cooler than the Sun, with about 0.9 times the Sun's mass and about half its luminosity. Alpha Centauri a and b orbit each other around a common centre of gravity every 79.91 Earth years. The distance between them varies from about that between the Sun and Pluto to that between the Sun and Saturn. The third star in the system, Proxima Centauri, is a spectral type M red dwarf star with about one-seventh times the diameter and about an eighth the mass of the Sun. Proxima Centauri takes about 550,000 Earth years to complete one orbit around Alpha Centauri A and B. When astronomers describe a star in terms of its spectral type, they're referring to its stellar classification based on its spectral characteristics. Scientists can analyse the electromagnetic radiation coming from a star by splitting its light with a prism or diffraction grating into a spectrum, exhibiting the rainbow of colours interspersed with spectral lines. Each of these spectral lines indicates a particular chemical element or molecule, with the line strength indicating the abundance of that element. The strengths of the different stars' spectral lines vary mainly due to the temperature of the star's photosphere. Stars can then be classified based on their spectral signatures. Most stars are currently classified using the letters O, B, A, F, G, K and M, a sequence from hottest type O stars to coolest type M stars. The stars in each letter class can then be subdivided using a numeric digit with 0 being the hottest and 9 being the coolest. Stars are also classified by colour, with spectral type O stars being bluish, B stars being bluish-white in colour, A stars usually appearing white, F stars appearing a whitish-yellow colour, G stars being yellow, K stars being orange, and M stars being red. A luminosity classification can also be added to the spectral class using Roman numerals. This is based on the width of certain absorption lines in the star spectrum, which can vary with density in the atmosphere, and so distinguish giant stars from dwarfs. Now, by using this classification sequence, we can describe our Sun, for example, as a spectral type G2V yellow dwarf star, indicating it's a main sequence star. Main sequence means it's fusing hydrogen into helium at its core, and it has a surface temperature of 5,800 Kelvin. Over the years, the stellar classification sequence has been expanded with classes for other types of stars and star-like objects that don't fit in the general classification system. These include the dead stellar corpses of stars called white dwarfs, being sometimes referred to as spectral type D. Carbon stars are sometimes classified as S or C, and Wolf-Rayet stars, which have spectra dominated by broad emission lines of highly ionised helium, are classified as W or WR. Also included in the stellar classification system are spectral types L, T and Y, which are assigned to failed stars known as brown dwarfs some of which may have been born as spectral type M red dwarfs, but became brown dwarfs after losing some of their mass. Unlike main sequence stars, brown dwarfs aren't massive enough to sustain core nuclear fusion of hydrogen into helium. The more massive ones, however, may be able to fuse deuterium and lithium. Brown dwarfs fit into a category of their own, between the largest planets, which are about 13 times the mass of Jupiter, and the smaller stars those spectral type M red dwarfs, which are about 75 to 80 times the mass of Jupiter, or if you prefer, 0.08 solar masses. OK, back to the skies now. And the nearer of the two pointer stars to the Southern Cross is Beta Centauri, which, like Alpha Centauri, is a triple star system, but located a far more distant 390 light years away. All three of the stars in Beta Centauri are young, massive blue stars, far larger and far more luminous than the Sun. 
two of the stars, named Beta Centauri AA and AB, orbit each other, with the third star, Beta Centauri B, orbiting the pair every 1,500 Earth years. Beta Centauri AA and AB are spectroscopic binaries, orbiting each other every 357 Earth days. Spectroscopic binaries are so named because they orbit each other so closely as seen from Earth that you can't tell there are actually two stars there when you look at them through a telescope. It's only by looking at their spectroscopic signatures and seeing the slight Doppler shift as one moves towards you and the other moves away that you can tell that there are actually two separate stars involved. Both these stars are now reaching the end of their time on the main sequence, meaning they'll soon run out of hydrogen for core fusion. They'll then both expand to become red giants. The two pointer stars, Alpha and Beta Centaurus, are named after Chiron the Centaur, a mythical Greek being who was half man and half horse. According to Greek legend, Chiron taught many of the gods and heroes, but he was placed among the stars after accidentally being shot with a poison arrow by Hercules. Next to the two pointer stars is the Southern Cross, or Crux. It's the smallest but one of the best known of the 88 constellations in the sky. During April, the Southern Cross lies on its side in early evening, but becomes more upright as the night progresses. The bottom and brightest star in the Southern Cross is Alpha Crucis, which is actually a multiple star system located some 321 light-years away. It consists of three stars, A1 Crucis, which is another spectroscopic binary, and A2 Crucis. A2 Crucis and the primary star in A1 Crucis are both spectral type B blue stars with surface temperatures of around 26,000 and 28,000 Kelvin respectively. The two components orbit each other every 1500 Earth years at an average distance of 430 astronomical units. An astronomical unit is the average distance between the Earth and the Sun. That's roughly 150 million kilometres or 8.3 light minutes. The spectroscopic binary A1 Crucis is thought to comprise two stars with about 10 and 14 times the mass of the Sun respectively. They pair orbit each other every 76 Earth days at an average distance of about 150 million kilometres. The masses of A2 Crucis and the larger component of A1 Crucis are expected to eventually explode as core collapse supernovae, ending up as neutron stars, while the smaller component of A1 Crucis should survive as a white dwarf. The left-hand and second brightest star in the Southern Cross is called Beta Crucis and is another spectroscopic binary, consisting of two stars orbiting each other every five Earth years, at an average distance which varies between 5.4 and 12 astronomical units. Beta Crucis is located about 280 light-years away. A light-year is about 10 trillion kilometres, the distance a photon can travel in a year at the speed of light, which is about 300,000 kilometres per second in a vacuum, and the ultimate speed limit of the universe. The primary star, Beta Crucis A, is a spectral type B Beta Cephei variable blue star, which changes in brightness over a period ranging from every 4 to 4.6 hours. It has about 16 times the sun's mass, about 8 times its diameter, and a surface temperature of about 27,000 Kelvin. The second star in the system, Beta Crucis B, is about 10 solar masses. A third companion has also been detected in the system but it appears to be a very low mass at this stage pre-main sequence star, which hasn't commenced nuclear fusion just yet. Near Beta Crucis is the spectacular young open star cluster known as the Kappa Crucis Cluster, or NGC 4755, more commonly known as the Jewel Box, the name given to it by the famous 18th century astronomer John Herschel. Open star clusters are groups of stars which were originally all born at the same time in the same collapsing molecular gas and dust cloud. Although somewhat still gravitationally bound, it's thought stars in open clusters could eventually separate and move to other parts of the galaxy. 
As the name suggests, the Jewel Box is an absolutely stunning collection of more than 100 bright, colourful stars, located somewhere around 6,440 light years away. Although its exact distance is somewhat difficult to determine because of the nearby Colsac Nebula, which obscures some of the light. The Colsac is a dark nebula containing lots of gas and dust blocking out background stars. In Australian Aboriginal Dreamtime legend, the Colsac formed the head of the Emu constellation, with the dark dust lanes of the Milky Way forming the Emu's body and legs. The central parts of the jewel box are framed by bright stars making up an A-shaped asterism. These are among the brightest known blue, white and red supergiants in the Milky Way. Next we move to Gamma Crucis, which is located at the top of the Southern Cross and is the third brightest star in the constellation. It's also the nearest red giant to our solar system, located just 88.6 light years away. Although only a third more massive than the Sun, its expanded outer envelope is now bloated out to some 84 times the Sun's radius, and it's radiating some 1500 times the Sun's luminosity. As a red giant no longer on the main sequence, Gamma Crucis is nearing the end of its life. Its surface temperature is 3626 Kelvin, and it has a very prominent reddish-orange appearance. The star on the right-hand side of the Southern Cross is Delta Crucis, a massive, hot and rapidly rotating star that's in the process of evolving into a red giant and eventually ending up as a white dwarf. The star is located some 345,000 light-years away and has about nine times the sun's mass and eight times its radius. It's presently radiating about 10,000 times the luminosity of the sun from its outer atmosphere, an effective temperature of 22,570 Kelvin causing it to glow with a blue-white hue. The smallest star in the Southern Cross is Epsilon Crucis, which is located in the space between Delta and Alpha Crucis. It's a red giant, some 228 light-years away. It is about 1.42 times the Sun's mass and is bloated out to some 32 times its radius. OK, let's move away from the Southern Cross now to the constellation Orion the Hunter, which is still clearly visible in the northwestern night skies with its rectangle of four stars surrounding the central trio of stars which form Orion's belt. Hanging from the belt and pointing upwards from our point of view in the Southern Hemisphere is Orion's sword, also made up of what look like three stars. The central star, however, isn't a star at all. It's actually a huge stellar nursery known as the Great Nebula of Orion, located some 1,500 light-years away, making it the nearest large star-forming region to our solar system. Inside the Orion Nebula are hundreds of newly forming stars and protostars. The four best-known of these young stars are called the Trapezium. To the right, or east of Orion, is the constellation Gemini, which has two bright stars, Polax and Castor. This time of year, the Gemini twins are almost directly due north for Southern Hemisphere skywatchers. The higher of the two stars, Polax, is a red giant, some 11 times the diameter of the Sun, and located fairly nearby, just 34 light-years away. The other star, Castor, is much further away, some 51 light-years. It's not a single star, but a double binary, made up of two sets of two stars. Each double star pair orbiting the other every 460 Earth-years. A third reddish star, also a double star, has been identified in Gemini. The stars are spectroscopic binaries. As we said before, that means they're detected by spectroscopic data showing the two stars of each system moving towards and away from us. In Greek mythology, Polax and Castor protected the sailors on the ship Argo, which was searching for the Golden Fleece. Looking east, we see the star Regulus. It's the brightest star in the constellation Leo the Lion. Regulus, which means the Little King, is located some 77 light-years away. It's about three and a half times as massive as the Sun and about 140 times as luminous. 
Regulus has a binary companion star, which takes about 130,000 Earth years to orbit the primary. To the right of Regulus, and virtually due east in the sky, is the star Spica. Located directly below the four stars of the constellation Corvus the Crow, Spica is another spectroscopic binary, comprising two extremely close stars which orbit each other every four Earth days. In fact, the two stars are so close to each other, their shapes have been gravitationally distorted into that of a rugby league or gridiron football. Light from the binary changes in brightness as the two stars orbit each other, exposing their elongated hemispheres to us. Spike is located some 260 light-years away and is some 2,000 times as luminous as the Sun. The name Spike means ear of wheat, so named because it marks the start of the harvest season in the Northern Hemisphere. Going back to the Southern Cross now and to the right or west, we find the star Canopus, the second brightest star in the night sky after Sirius. Even though Canopus is some 312 light-years away, it looks incredibly bright because it's so huge. A spectral type A bluey-white star, 100 times the diameter of the Sun and 10,000 times as luminous. Its name is generally considered to have originated from the Greek mythological Canopus, who was the navigator for the fleet of Menelaus, king of Sparta, which was sailing back from the Battle of Troy. Canopus is said to have died when the fleet arrived at the port of Alexandria in Egypt, and so a star which was visible on the horizon was named in his honour. Canopus is the brightest star in the constellation Carina, the keel of the ship Argo, made famous in the search for the Golden Fleece. Carina, together with two other constellations, Veal of the Sails and Puppus the Stern, were originally part of the super constellation Argo Navis, or the ship Argo, which was divided into three in 1930 when the International Astronomical Union defined 88 official constellations. One of the nebulae in Argo Navis is the Great Nebula of Carina, a massive cloud of gas and dust between 6.5 and 10,000 light-years away. It surrounds the Eta Carina binary star system, located some 7,500 light-years away. Eta Carina is classified as a pair of highly luminous spectral type O blue hypergiants. Its primary star is estimated to be somewhere between 150 and 200 times the mass of the Sun, with some 5 million times the Sun's luminosity, 800 times the Sun's radius, and a surface temperature of up to 32,500 Kelvin. The companion star, although somewhat smaller than the primary at just 80 solar masses and 20 times the Sun's radius, is even hotter, with surface temperatures around 37,200 Kelvin. The two stars orbit each other every 5.54 Earth years, cocooned in a gigantic twin-lobed cloud of gas and dust known as the Homunculus Nebula, a bipolar emission and reflection nebula. Eta Carina experiences some tremendous outbursts. During one event between 1830 and 1840, it suddenly became almost as bright as Sirius. Both Eta Carina and its surrounding shrouds of dust generate huge amounts of radiation, making it the brightest infrared source in the sky. Both stars are nearing the end of their lives on the main sequence and are expected to go supernova in an astronomically short space of time. Now, when it does go supernova, Eta Carina will be visible in daylight and may even become brighter than the moon for months on end. One of the big features of April is the year's second major meteor shower, the Lyrids, which peak on April the 22nd and 23rd. The Lyrids appear to radiate out of the constellation Lyra, close to the star Vega, one of the brightest stars in the sky this time of year. The source of the meteor shower are particles of dust and debris shed by the long-period comet C1861G1 Thatcher. Skywatchers in the Northern Hemisphere always get the best view of the Lyrids. However, those at mid-Southern Hemisphere latitudes can also see the shower between midnight and dawn. Patient observers will be rewarded with around 18 meteors per hour before dawn from dark sky locations. 
And now, with a look at what else is happening in the April night skies, we're joined by Jonathan Nally, editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. G'day, Stuart. Yeah, well, we'll start, as always, with the Milky Way, which at this time of the year for us in the Southern Hemisphere is stretching right across the sky from southeast to northeast during the first half of the night in April. In the early morning hours, about, you know, six or 12 hours later, with the Earth having turned a bit more on its axis, the Milky Way is actually swapped over and it'll be stretching from the southeast to the northeast. That's what you get when you live on a rotating planet. The brightest star in the sky, Sirius, is virtually overhead at this time of the year for us down here in sort of middle southern latitudes. And up there in the north, the unmistakable pattern of Orion, the hunter, is nice and high. You can't miss that. All these sort of things I just described are, are sort of through the Milky Way. Now, as the night rolls on, the bright constellations of the Milky Way will begin to drop down in the west, and the constellations rising in the east will seem a bit bare by comparison. That's to the naked eye, at least. For amateur astronomers with backyard telescopes, though, this region of the sky is anything but empty, for it contains the constellations Virgo and Coma Berenice, which combined have thousands of galaxies that are within the reach of standard amateur telescopes. They're too faint to see with the naked eye, but you look through a telescope and they just pop into view. There are huge clusters of galaxies in this direction in the sky. Now, Virgo is one of the greatest uh, gravitational wells in our part of the universe, isn't it? It's, it's absolutely huge, the Virgo cluster. That's right, because there are so many galaxies in this cluster that uh, it's, it's, when you combine all the gravity together, sort of draw stuff in. Galaxies out there in the universe tend not to be uh, lone wolves. They tend to form into clusters. So our Milky Way galaxy is in a small cluster called the Local Group, which includes the big Andromeda galaxy nearby, which is much the same as the Milky Way, plus a lot of little smaller galaxies as well. But then you get larger and larger and larger clusters and superclusters and mega clusters. And yeah, and out there towards Virgo and also in that constellation Coma, there are some big clusters of galaxies. People with backyard telescopes who like to look at galaxies can just spend weeks and weeks and weeks, and in fact years, going through all the different galaxies you can spot out there. You need fairly good skies to see them in a good backyard telescope, but they're quite amazing to see. When you think that you're looking at another galaxy that's just like the Milky Way or even bigger and it's hundreds of millions of light years away and you can actually see it and the light that's going into your eye at that moment left there hundreds of millions of years ago, you know, it, it is really quite incredible. As far as the planets are concerned, Venus, the so-called uh, goddess of love planet, can be seen low in the western sky as the twilight comes on. You can't miss it, very bright, looks like a really big bright star out there, sort of low on the west just as the, you know, the sun's gone down and, and the sky's starting to get dark. Venus is really prominent and I get lots of people saying, what's that star out there in the west? It wasn't there last night. And I say, well, actually it was. You just didn't notice it. Venus actually is responsible for lots and lots of UFO reports because a lot of people don't look up in the sky on a regular basis. They're, you know, we're all busy, busy. We've got our heads down or driving or, or whatever. Uh, well, there's so much light pollution as well. And light pollution, yeah. And then you look up one night and you think, what on earth is that big, bright white light? I didn't see that before. Surely I would have seen it before if it was there you know, some other time prior to tonight. But no, uh, yeah, Venus is um, responsible for lots and lots and lots of so-called UFO reports. Over on the eastern horizon is where all the rest of the action is going to be happening. Jupiter will be rising at about 8pm at the beginning of April. And so it'll be visible the whole rest of the night that means so coming up over the eastern horizon about 8 p.m by the end of april it'll be rising just after 6 p.m so getting a bit earlier night after night saturn rises a few hours later about 11 p.m at the start of the month and by just about 9 p.m at the end of april see if you can steal a look at it through a telescope because it just looks amazing with its rings there now right next to saturn
and you'll see what looks to be a, a dimmer reddish coloured star. Well that's actually the planet Mars. The two planets will stay fairly close to one another during April as seen from Earth and I say from Earth because in reality of course out there in space they're hundreds of millions of kilometres apart but from our line of sight they appear next to each other in the sky. And finally anyway Stuart the innermost planet Mercury begins April at what astronomers call inferior conjunction. It's sort of the opposite of opposition if you like. Inferior conjunction is just a fancy way of saying that it's between us and the Sun and obviously then we can't see it because it's lost in the glare of the Sun but for Mercury it'll come out of the glare of the Sun in the, by about the end of the first week of April and then you'll be able to see Mercury above the eastern horizon before dawn as, as the sky is starting to get a bit light. It just looks like a little tiny pinprick fairly bright star but that's actually the planet Mercury and Mercury being close to the Sun comes and goes from our sky quite quickly over a matter of weeks because it's zipping around the Sun so it tends to go around the other side of the Sun and get lost in the glare. Pops up again we can see it for a while and it gets lost in the glare as it goes between us and the Sun again and so on and so on and so on. Unlike the outer planets like Jupiter or Saturn which do from time to time go around the opposite side of the Sun and we can't see them. That's Jonathan Nally, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary and that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audio Boom, from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com, or from your favourite podcast download provider. Space Time's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., and available around the world on TuneIn Radio. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter through at Stuart Gary, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 